0: Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as I said, today we're going to be going through Psalm 37, and my hope is that for especially those of you who are just having a hard time right now, that this would be a balm to your soul. And now, whether you're going through a hard time looking at all that our nation is getting into, Whether you have personal issues that are just creeping up or you're just having sicknesses and diseases and ailments, that you would ultimately look back to your Savior and your Creator and draw much sustenance from Him today because what He gives us here are just an incredible amount of encouraging promises. So when we look around the world, though, it is really easy for us to simply become discouraged, isn't it? We often see that good men die young and we see that evil men seem to prevail. We see righteousness impaled in the streets. We see debauchery that's lifted up as something that's not only acceptable, but actually praiseworthy. We see that a lie will go viral, but the truth is often obscured to the shadows and seems to only reach a select few people. We see that the wicked invent new ways of doing evil. They enshrine it in our laws, they say all these things are good and right, and then ultimately they turn and hate that which is righteous. They even hate the righteous, they mock the righteous, they slander and even punish the righteous when they stand against the tide. The wicked often seemingly live easy lives of abundance, and yet the righteous appear to struggle and suffer at every single turn. Every which way we look at it, it seems as if the wicked flourish, and the righteous person simply flounders. And yet, the scriptures tell us that the Lord laughs, he literally laughs at the wicked. Well, the reason for this is that he knows their day is swiftly approaching. He knows the very moment they will take their last breath. He knows the moment they will slip into eternity, and that the earth will simply gape open wide to swallow them whole. And then he also knows that when the dirt is piled high above them, their legacy will be no more, and yet the righteous will prevail. Evil, in other words, will not have the final say. Sin, death, Satan will not be victorious. And so the matter at hand ultimately is one of perspective, but it is also one of time. The questions we we must simply ask are, do we see things as the Lord sees them? Do we apprehend the promises of God in spite of however things may seem to our eyes, however things may seem to look? In other words, do we believe God is on our side as he says he is? In essence, the fundamental question I'm asking all of you today is, do you trust God? Do you trust him? Do you trust him and sincerely trust him so much so that every aspect of your life actually reflects that trust in him? Well, that is the message of our psalm today, again, Psalm 37, that despite appearances, despite the wicked seemingly always getting their way and always being lifted up and always being affluent and always succeeding, that God will reward the faithful. And so in light of that, we are to persevere. We are to continue to do good and to trust in him. The reasons for this are relatively simple, and he lays out five promises in this text as to Why? Well, he will vindicate us. He will re- reward us. He will sustain us. He will lift us up or exalt us. And then ultimately, he will save us. These are the five unfailing promises that David gives us in this psalm here today. And so, what I want to do today for all of you is simply encourage you in one way, shape, or form to press on in that faith that is a gift from God, but ultimately, that it would not simply be this this resignment, but that you would love these truths. You would hold on to them with every fiber of your being, knowing with certainty that if you are in Christ, these promises are yours, that you would know they are yours, that they would never, ever depart from you. And so look with me now as we start to simply make our way through the text, and we're gonna look at verses one through six to start where we see the first promise of our Lord given here today, and that is, the unrighteous may seem to prevail, But it is Lord who, or the Lord who, will vindicate the righteous. Now, if you're familiar with who David is, you know that probably better than anybody else. He understands simply how quickly our hearts are prone to forget the goodness of God and His promises. Right? I mean, David is a man that has routinely suffered at the hands of unjust men. He has lived to see his own son seek to usurp him and kill him and take the throne. But he's also continually seeing many men, I mean many, many men, who are constantly plotting against him to kill him. Not once but twice has he fled from his pursuers, and his life has been on the line. But beyond this, even when there's peace in his own personal life, there is this constant threat of warfare that he simply has to endure. He has been slandered, he has been mocked and hated and betrayed and even condemned, but literally all of it because he is an innocent man. Right, We see plenty of times, obviously, where his own sin comes in the midst of his situations, but David is a man who's got a heart after God, and yet he still suffers, he still sees the wicked thrive, yet ultimately he's a man that time and time again remains one who hopes in the promises of God. And the reason for this is simple. He knows that God is faithful. He ultimately knows that though the wicked may seem to have the upper hand all the time, it is always short-lived. It is always short-lived. Everything they have, everything they are, is temporary. And that's the beautiful reality. That's the real reality behind the scenes. They may be here for a season. Everything that they have may be here for a season, but tomorrow, it's gone. This is what he draws our attention to. If you look with me now at verses 1 through 2. Well, he says in two different commands here in the first verse, Do not fret, that's the first one, do not fret because of evildoers, but secondly, do not be envious towards wrongdoers. Well, the natural implication is that we do this, but these are two things that capture our hearts and minds and attention, don't they? When you see wicked men doing what wicked men do best, your natural inclination, especially if you see them given honor, especially if you see them given wealth, is to fixate on that. And you may think, maybe I'm not prone to fret or anxiety, because that's how you think of that term, but really what David's saying here is it's not just this anxiousness that characterizes you, it's that you're angry over it, you're indignant over it, because you hate seeing the unrighteous get what they get. The Hebrew, again, speaks of becoming angry over these things, and then all of a sudden that strikes most of us a bit closer to home, doesn't it? The natural reality is that anger produces, often, if we let it go uncontrolled, it produces unrighteous speech and feelings of hatred. It produces complaints and all sorts of other things that come with it. But his point here is that this anger is something that characterizes the person. In other words, it's not a righteous anger. You are a bitter and grumbling person. Well, then he turns our attention to envy, and this starts to make a little bit more sense of this matter at hand, doesn't it? This is simple to explain. You simply resent the evildoer for what they have. You resent them. They have life easy. They have all the money in the world and they can do whatever it is that they want to. They have all the power and yet they use it for evil. Now, if you had those things, you'd do things differently, wouldn't you? And so, in all of it, you dwell on these things. It infects your mind, it affects your heart, and you start to crave what they have. You start to resent them for what they have, and you lack thankfulness for what God has given you. All in all, you're an ple- un- unpleasant person to be around because your life is characterized by being outraged over something new or being covetous towards what others might have. And we can wrap it up under all sorts of, quote-unquote, godly beliefs, but the reality at hand is we are angry and we are covetous David here, though, turns our minds to the right perspective. He says, Do not become angry. Do not envy what they have. Do not become enraged over what evil men may do. Do not covet what they have. Well, the reason for this is quite simple. If you look at verse 2, he simply says, For this reason, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. In other words, he says, well, you don't need to be enraged over all that evil men do, and you don't need to be covetous over all that they have, because every bit of it is going away. Not one bit of it will stick around, and the wicked themselves will go away as well. And so it truthfully doesn't matter, not in the grand scheme of things, he says. And so instead of being given to anger and to envy, he now points us to things that are far greater to essentially grab our attention, and that's in verses 3 through 6, he gives a series of commands here. I want you to look down at the text because I'm just going to list them rapid fire. But all of these commands expand off of one another here. And so look down. You'll see in, in verse three, he says, trust in the Lord and do good. Verse three again, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Verse four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse five, commit your ways to the Lord. Verse five again, we are to trust in him. Why? Because he will act. So you see a, a little bit of a pattern here, right? He's continually drawing our minds and focus back to God. But the reason he does all these things and the reason he implores us to do all these things is found in verse 6. And it's, again, quite simple. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. In other words, he says, evil will not triumph. Evil will not have the final say. All of these commands are simply a way of saying that our faith is not evidenced by fear or anxiety or envy or anger of the wicked, but a life that simply is one of trust and submission to the will of God. So rather than being consumed by these things, he said, trust in the Lord, continue to obey him. This is in essence what faithfulness is. We trust that in the end, he will sort literally everything out and we need not preoccupy ourselves with trying to fix everything that's broken or speak to everything that's wicked. So rather, we we have a, a radically simple life, if I were to put it in one way, and that simple life is that we model what it looks like to trust in God and to obey him. I think of everything that's going on around you, and that's what it boils down to. Do you trust God and do you obey him? So rather than fret over all that may be, he simply says, cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in God's ways, and again, I, I just I ask: How much better would it be if we were people known as that rather than ones who fret over everything? Right? If we were people who would trust in the Lord, if we modeled what that looked like, but also ones who gave thanks to Him in the midst of incredibly evil days, rather than everything else we're so prone to do. That instead of complaining and grumbling, that we would model what it looks like to be steadfast and trustworthy and faithful in a land that has no clue what it looks like to be steadfast or trustworthy or faithful. That we would draw our strength and security from the God who is faithful and true and then in turn point others to everyone else to say, look at this God who is faithful and true, follow me. beyond that, that we would actually believe the promises that are attached to all of these things. Because that's the wonderful thing about God. It's it's not just a matter of obedience. He actually promises blessing to us. So if you look in verse 4, what does he say here? He says, if we cultivate faithfulness, if we delight ourselves in God's ways, that he will give us the desires of our heart. Now, This is not, by the way, you waking up tomorrow and saying, I'm going to get a Lamborghini in my driveway. That's just not how this works, right? The idea is actually much greater than this. It's not that we're going to get more stuff. It actually has nothing to do with that. It's that as we commit our way to God, as we delight in him, and as we trust in him, he's actually going to take up our case and vindicate us. So when evil men come against us, as we do these things, he promises, I'll be there with you. I will not forsake you. And so rather than us trying to shoulder every single burden, in turn, we just so simply, as a Hebrew expresses it, literally roll these things off of our backs onto him. We cast every single care upon the God who promises to act, and he says, I will deliver you. That's incredible. He says, I will deliver you from evil. I will deliver you from harm. But the point of the psalmist in this section is, is rather simply summed up in saying that rather than fixating on every single thing that's wrong with this world and envying the wicked with what they have, that we would simply commit our ways to God and trust him. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. It's radically simple, isn't it? We obey him and we walk by faith. Evil will not triumph. And we take God at his word when he says that. The righteous will live with God forever, and yet the wicked will wither and fade like the grass. Everything they have, everything they are, will be gone. Everything, in other words, in this life, is temporary, except what God has deemed eternal. It's all fading away. But the Lord will vindicate the life of faith. That's the beautiful thing. The Lord will vindicate the life of faith. And so therefore, we trust in the Lord. Now as we turn to verses 7 through 15, we see there's another unfailing promise here in the text, that though the wicked may seem to flourish, the Lord will reward the righteous. Again, 7 through 15. So look down at verses 7 through 8. I want you to notice he gives another series of commands to the people of God here. But these ones just simply focus our attention on the natural result of living as a righteous man or even as a wicked man here. And so that the idea is that within the heart of the righteous, as verses 7 through 8 display here, there is this, this calmness, there is a stillness, there is this patience as they wait and literally resign themselves to the will of God. It's not this kind of let go and let God mentality that does nothing. That's pure fatalism. It's really this idea that they trust God. They, they literally entrust themselves to God and that he will care for them because he has promised that. He will intervene for them because he has promised that. They're not filled with dread, anxiety, nor do they wring their hands in frustration at all they see around them. Rather, they wait on the Lord and they seek his provisions and his protection. And now this calmness and patience would be easy if the wicked failed at everything they sought to do, wouldn't it? But look again at verse 7. I want you to see that the opposite is actually true here. If you look at the, the middle verse here, it says, do not fret because of him who becomes or prospers in his way or the one who carries out his wicked schemes. In other words, they actually succeed here. They're not merely you know, successful and having much wealth and prosperity, they actually succeed in oftentimes with their plans with uh, scheming against the righteous. And yet, even in the midst of that, the plan, or not the plan, but the promise is attached to that, that those who wait on the Lord will be blessed. So he says, do not use this then as an excuse to vent your anger and wrath. Again, do not fret. It's repeated here, but notice he gives a reason why. In verse 8, if you look at it, he says, do not fret. Why? It leads only to evil doing. And it's not that sometimes it's going to lead to evil doing, but always. He says fretting only leads to evil. And for me, at least, it, it reminds me of Christ's own words where he says, which of you can add an hour to your life by worrying? A single hour. Can you add it? Right? There is far more sin and justification for our own sin as we would ever like to admit that comes from worry and anxiety and fretting. Worry produces fear, fear produces reaction, and oftentimes it's just not even thinking of what may come after the fact. But in an instant, we make a decision all based on fear and the pernicious what-ifs, and then we're surprised, we're literally shocked when all sorts of evil comes about as a, as a result. But there's a greater way if we genuinely took God at his word, we wouldn't scramble. We wouldn't be the people who are trying to fix everything before it becomes broken, and then we just come with greater pieces to the puzzle. No, we would actually rest in God's providential care, and that's what he's driving the Israelites to hear. Part of the issue, I think, is that we are so ingrained with this rugged American individualism, right? This Picking ourselves up by the bootstraps mentality that we we really have no clue what it means to actually trust in the Lord and to actually wait in him. We scramble. We try to do damage control. We fret. We worry. We dread. And then again, we're shocked at what comes of it. All of it, though, is because we try to avoid hardship and suffering. We don't believe the prosperity gospel, but maybe we do a little bit right? We don't want to suffer. We don't want to have a harder life. And so we do everything we can to avoid it. We build our safety nets. And all the while, we don't trust in our God who promises to help us. Now, another aspect of this, though, as we see in verses 9 through 11, is that trust requires patience. That's one of the harder things. He says we we must not only look up to God himself, we must look ahead meaning we must look at what comes. So look down with me at verses 9 through 11 and see what our psalmist writes here. David writes, For evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they will inherit the land. And yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more, and you will look carefully for his place, and he will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. And this is really the problem in a nutshell, isn't it? Is that we forget. We forget that as the wicked seemingly flourish around us as a triumph, there's a day coming where they will be cut off. But we also forget that the righteous will have their due reward. Right? It's not merely that evil will be done away with, but that we, as the righteous ones in Christ, will actually inherit a reward. Now, David's speaking here of the promised land to the Israelites, but he's also looking at things in light of eternity. He knows that one day will come where the wicked will be cut off and the righteous will be forever in the land, that they will simply be able to do whatever they wish without fear or without dread or anxiety of what others might do to them. And yet he looks around him and he says, there's still wicked people here. I mean, this is very much like our own day, isn't it? We're we all waiting for that glorious day when Christ sets all things right and we know that evil will be done away with and yet we look around and what do we find? We find evil at every front, don't we? We're watching our world circle the drain and depart from everything that's good faster than we can even keep up with. And sometimes we wonder, at least if we're really honest, sometimes we wonder, will there actually be an end to it? Will there be an end to it? It's miserable to look at. But the real reality, the reality behind the scenes of it all, is that in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. I mean, that is a fact, beloved. You will one day go to search for them. You will search high and low, and they will be nowhere to be found. Again, it is a matter of perspective. But it is also a matter of time. Things are not as they seem. So if we fix our eyes on everything that's literally happening around us, there's much to despair over and much to lose hope over. And yet, our psalmist here says, it's just a matter of time. That's it. Just a matter of time. Evil will one day be no more. But it gets even better than this. It's far, far better than this. Look down with me at verse 11. Look at what he says here. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. It says, there's a day coming where the humble take the land, they get what's rightfully theirs, and it will be characterized by abundant prosperity. Now that word prosperity is not what you might think of when you first hear that word. It's actually the word shalom. And shalom often is translated as the word peace, but in this context, it's far, far richer than just peacefulness. Here it's speaking of a complete state of well-being, a complete state of joy, and ultimately that God himself will be their peace, that God himself will be their salvation, not only from the wicked, but from everything that gets to harm them. Now by salvation, again, I don't mean in a sense of their sin is forgiven or that they are justified, but in reality that God himself is delivering them, delivering the righteous from the evil, that he protects them at every single turn. Now, the wicked might have this sense of temporary flourishing. They might appear as if they're on the top, but only the one who rests in the Lord will find true peace or true shalom. They will have true and lasting prosperity, not just the stuff that will fade away and be burned up at the end of the age, but things that will be untainted and undefiled and unstained by sin. Every bit of life will be characterized by just this incredibly beautiful reality that Christ has purchased them, not only as his possession, but taken them out of this world and then given them a new world. And that, beloved, is what we are to fix our eyes on in the midst of an evil age. Things appear one way now, but one day it will all be different. Everything is temporary, in other words. Again, imagine all of it being burned up by fire in the day of judgment because that's what scripture says. Literally, all of it will be burned up in purifying fire as the Lord makes all things new. But more than this is that the wicked will be no more. Beloved, sin will be no more. Sin will be no more. Satan will be no more. Death will be no more. It all will be vanquished. And if we have hearts of faith that truly believed this, would our lives not be markedly different now? That's the harder question, isn't it? Would we not live in a way that truly indicates that we are merely passing through this life? That when everything hits the fan, that we are people characterized by peace and not anxiety and not fretting, not worry. Why? Because God is our shalom is our peace. No disease, no stock market crash, no man, no invasion, nothing can steal God and his peace from you. But the question is, do we believe that? Do we genuinely believe that? But David doesn't even stop here. Right? He affirms this unfailing promise that God will reward the righteous, but then he continues to show this now in verses 12 through 15. And, and so, again, look down with me and, and just see what the fullness of this looks like. Again, verses 12 through 15. So in this section, he, he draws out the fact that though the wicked plot against the righteous, God does what? But sit in the heavens and laughs. He laughs. He laughs at their futile scheming. Why? Because he knows that the day of judgment is actually at hand. It's coming. He said, they can't avoid it. Try as you might to do whatever you can against the righteous. One day, I will bring you down. It's only a matter of time. It shows that same wisdom that's applied all throughout the book of Proverbs, verses 14 and 15. If you look down again, you can see this. The wicked make all sorts of plans to slay the righteous and to destroy them, And yet, what does it say? But that the sword will pierce their own heart. Their own bows will be broken. So no matter what they plan, every bit of it returns upon their own head. In other words, they they will reap what they have sown. There's not even a single weapon of warfare that will actually accomplish what they desire it to accomplish. And again, he's not speaking merely just of the days to come in final judgment for these guys. He's actually saying, in the here and now, I will protect you right? I mean, we see this all the time. I know that you officers see it, where guys play stupid games and win stupid prizes, right? I mean, this is just a natural result of living in the world, is sometimes you make a horrible decision, and that horrible decision bears consequences. That's the same reality of what he's saying here. He's saying, whatever traps that the wicked may lay, they're going to be ensnared by it themselves, and that will bring them to ruin. And then after that comes eternal ruin. We know this. But for us, this is a really rather beautiful portrayal of the fact that though things may appear one way, though they may appear to have the upper hand and always win out, in fact, things are very, very different. Things are far different from what they seem. They might appear to have everything in order, all their ducks in a row, so to speak. They might succeed in whatever they put their hands to. They might even succeed in their plans for evil. And yet evil will not win. Now, it doesn't take very long for us to look at various places around the world where simply even naming the name of Christ will get your head chopped off. I mean, that is a literal, real problem in our world. Now, we don't have that, but other countries we're seeing who purport to love freedom are jailing pastors just simply for holding a service or for preaching on basic truths of Scripture. Basic truths. We might not be under the threat of death or any of that just yet here, but let me just ask you, do you not see the very real hatred that people have for all things good and right and lovely? I mean, beloved, how hard is it to just say that a woman is a woman? But if you think that that's funny, if you think that there's not something more evil going on behind all of that, there is. This is an all-out frontal attack on truth. We're seeing it in an exceedingly vile way. And yet we could easily become bittered over that, wouldn't we? Or couldn't we? We could fret, we could worry. But what's the promise? God rewards the righteous, and therefore we trust in the Lord. The reason is simple. Is God not faithful in all he does? We know that God is faithful in all he does, and therefore we don't lose heart. We, we don't look upon appearances. We don't look at the greatest courts in the land and think that somehow this is going to foil God, because it won't. By faith, we press forward in order that we might obtain the promises that God has given us. And one of the unfailing promises of the Lord is that though the wicked may seem to flourish, he will one day reward the righteous in full. It's just a little ways off. And therefore, we trust in him. Well, we now come to a third unfailing promise of the Lord. And that is that though the unrighteous may seem to have plenty, the Lord sustains the righteous. He sustains them. Verses 16 through 26. Now, this is an incredibly pastoral section of the psalm. David looks at those who have very little, and he gives them comfort. He says, you don't have very much in this life, and yet he shows them that there's something greater even behind this. You can see there's a bit of tension in this section, because you have two different groups of people, right? You have the righteous, and they are few. They have very little. And then you have the unrighteous, or the wicked, and they are many, and they have abundance. And so where the righteous struggle to put food on the table, the wicked have no shortage of feasting. Where the righteous continue to struggle and just take care of their own kids, the unrighteous have no problems about that. And based on this section of the psalm, it's it's coming off of the cuffs of what we just saw, so it's very likely that the unrighteous or the wicked have deprived the righteous of everything that they have. And so what he's saying here is that it's still better for you as a righteous man, even though they've robbed you. It's better for the righteous to have little than to cast your lot with the wicked. And the simple reason for this is much the same as he has said already. Look down. What does he say? He says, verse 17, for the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. They're going to be cut off from the land. Again, they are fading quickly. But more than this, they'll have their arms broken. I mean, that's pretty brutal, isn't it? This comes right off, again, of the cuffs of 14 and 15. The wicked are seeking to kill them, and yet they won't even be able to lift their swords. Instead, they're going to impale themselves on it and cut to their own heart. But then notice also there's even more of a contrast here, starting in verse 17. So look down with me again. He says, "'The arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous.'" The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their inheritance will be forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil and in the days of famine, they will have abundance. He continues to say in verse 20, but the wicked will perish and the enemies of Yahweh will be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke, they vanish away. And so it is not merely that the wealth of the, Wicked will be plundered from them, but they won't even endure during days of hardship and famine. Right? That's an incredible promise if you really start to think about what all that means. When calamity comes, they will be the ones who do not survive. That's what he's saying here. But what does the Lord do for the righteous? He sustains them. The wicked might seem to flourish like the rolling hills and the pasture lands, and yet when the day comes, they'll simply vanish like smoke. Their lives are wisps of smoke carried away by the subtle breeze. In other words, it really doesn't take all that much to just sweep them away. But the righteous ones, they are the ones who are truly planted as a large tree beside streams of water in Christ himself or in God will endure through thick and thin. God himself will be their sustenance. God himself will protect them from every foe. Notice how in verse 17, he also says this, and this this I found just incredible. God himself will, or he knows the days of the blameless. You remember just earlier, he said he knows the day of the wicked. He laughs because he knows that that day is coming. And yet for the righteous, he knows their day. He knows the days of the blameless. Just as he laughs at the day of the wicked coming when they will be judged, He knows the days of the righteous and will sustain them or support them in their time of need. Now think of Christ again, who promises that his children are truly more precious to him than the sparrows, right? The sparrows neither reap nor sow, and yet they are provided for. They have food always. And so how much more so does he love his children? How much more so does God provide for the one who loves him? Again, I think of how often you and I can just simply build our safety nets. We trust in our emergency funds to save us when things hit the fan, but the reality is that God Himself is one who promises to sustain us. It's not our wealth, it's not our 401k, it's not how much ammo you and I could stack up or how many guns we could have to protect us from the bad guys, if you will. It's God, He knows our days. He literally knows every single one of the days we will ever walk. He knows every one of our needs. Will your heavenly father who loves you give you a snake rather than the bread you ask for? Well, the question then in all of it is just simply, do we actually believe this? Or do we hedge our bets? My suspicions are that we often Don't ever actually get to that place because we never put ourselves in a position where we must trust God, where we must trust him. Every bit of our plans are all around how we can do it as safely as possible. But he promises to sustain us. I mean, for you older saints, have you ever met a man who has outgiven God? I mean, just, just think about that. Have you ever met somebody who can outgive God? He promises to sustain us. He will not let us go down to the grave without his loving care and providence in all things. And this, in turn, now characterizes the righteous, or at least it should characterize the righteous. This is what he's looking at in verses 21 and 22 here. Look down again, and you'll see that. He, he describes these people. He says, out of what little the righteous have, they graciously give to those in need, right? They don't even ask for it back, and yet the wicked are so money hungry, they borrow and they don't pay it back. Well, another word for that is just stealing. They steal. The wicked are the rich man with his storehouses laden with stuff, stuff they will never carry to the grave, and yet stuff they will nonetheless place all of their trust in, as if that these things will deliver them on the day of evil. But little do they consider the reality at play in verse 22. Right, those blessed by him will inherit the land. That's for the righteous. But here's their curse. Those cursed by him will be cut off. They will be cut off. Their wealth will be of no consequence all of their hard work, all the days they skipped vacations, sick days, time with the family, all the days they squandered it and put it into their own storehouses will be for naught, because what will come of it is that it will all come crumbling down to the ground on the day of reckoning. Their life will be demanded of them, and they will not be able to take their money and somehow stay that off. But he says the righteous will inherit the land. They will be blessed by God. Notice the the contrast here in all of it. The question again is just, are we entrusting ourselves to that which God has promised cannot deliver? Are we entrusting ourselves to that which God has promised will be destroyed and swallowed up on the last day? Beloved, this is such a touchy topic. I know that. Even within the church, it's a hard topic but Christ spoke of all this so often when he asked us, what is our treasure? What do we place our trust in? And I mean, what do we really place our trust in? The question is not if it's evil to have money in the bank, because that's, it's not. The question is, do we really believe it's better to have little as a righteous person than to, to have much as a wicked person, or to have abundance with the wicked? There's no rebuke in me asking this, but just ask yourselves this. When was the last time you genuinely had to entrust yourself to God? Not that there was a maybe. Not that we have a bunch of food sitting in the pantry that we can still get to later. We just don't like it. But when was the last time you said, Lord, give us this day our daily bread? When was the last time your generosity was merely more than just the, off the top But as Paul characterized of the Corinthians, or not the Corinthians, but um, another group of people, that it actually was to their own harm. I'm sorry, I forget it, but that it actually impacted the things they would have liked to have done and things that aren't evil, but things that pale in significance to eternal things. We fool ourselves if we think money will save us, beloved or if it's a means to bless ourselves. But in fact, money is is simply a tool that God gives us to show generosity and graciousness. We believe we lose it when we give it away or spend it on eternal things, but as Randy Alcorn puts it, we don't lose it, we simply send it on ahead. That's the beautiful reality of it, is we don't lose any penny. We send it to where a thief cannot steal it, a moth cannot destroy it, and that we know that God will not forsake his godly ones even on this earth. That he will reward us in due time, and but he will still provide for us in the here and now. And that's what he tells us in this psalm in verses 23 through 26. I mean, this is incredible. God's sustaining hand is so incredible that he says, every single step we take is established by God. And he delights in the way of the righteous. I mean, this whole section, 23 through 26, is just building this idea that in every single way, the righteous are truly safe and secure in God. Every single activity we take, every plan we make, every step we take is accounted for by God. God delights in our way because we are righteous, but that righteousness is one of obedience to his commands and ultimately of trusting in him. So even when we fall, he says, we shall not be cast headlong. It's simply another way of saying that you and I won't come to ruin. Why? Well, again, look down. Verse 24, the Lord is the one who holds his hand. He holds the hand of the righteous. I, I, I can't help but think of a father just walking his child. Right, The child is just kind of happily moseying about. They don't know exactly what's coming. They're just walking with dad. And we don't think of God that often like this, do we, As, as our father, who's literally holding our hand. But this is how David pictures him here. We grow up, we forget how needy we are, we forget how prone we are to simply stumble and fall, and yet God is the one who holds our hand. But we're children. We don't walk all that well. We stub our toe, we stumble, we fall, and yet he stays us. He takes a hold of us by his hand and keeps us from dashing our heads open on the rocks. The Father continually protects us. He catches us before we crack our heads open. He picks us back up even and puts us on the path of righteousness. And we aren't even aware of the fact that we were just in for a world of pain half the time. We just keep on walking, but his hand all the while is there. He guides us, he keeps us safe. Well, this is a reality that David knows exceedingly well. And this is what he draws attention to in verses 25 through 26. He talks about this now from a personal perspective, if you will. He says, I have been young and now I'm old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious. He lends and his descendants are a blessing. David says, I'm old. And every single day, I've not yet seen a time where the righteous are left unprovided for. I have not yet seen a day where their children are left destitute. In fact, I see just the opposite. I see the righteous, whether they have much or have little, are gracious. They give freely. They give joyfully. Their children are a blessing in the same exact way. Why? Because God provides for them. God sees fit that his needs are met. One thing we can say of God, no matter what, right, is that he is utterly consistent, right? He is utterly consistent. Again, have you ever seen a time where God has left his people destitute, where he's just abandoned them and left his child to struggle to even just eat that day? I mean, even in third world countries where they barely eat anything, God is still kind and faithful to give them their due. He feeds the sparrows. Beloved, this is why we don't need to envy the wicked in their abundance, or why even though everybody seems to flourish, that we don't have to doubt whether God or not will sustain us, because in fact, he does. He will not fail in his promise, nor will he falter in it. In fact, it is... Unfailing that he will sustain us. And therefore we trust in the Lord. Well, now we come to another promise here of God that though the unrighteous may always seem to have the upper hand, the Lord will in fact exalt the righteous. And that's verses 27 through 34. Now, David once again issues a command to the people here. If you would look down, he says, Depart from evil and do good, so you will abide in the land forever. It's actually that second, or th- second command is that you will abide forever. It's not a result of doing good, but a command. And so his purpose here is to say that instead of doing evil, turn from that, do good, but dwell in doing good forever. Let this, in other words, characterize your lives from here on out and forevermore. Never leave that spot of doing good. Well, the reason he gives for this in verse 29 is quite simple, or I should say verse 28. The Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but again, the wicked will be cut off. And then he simply describes the differences between the righteous man and the wicked man here. And all he's doing is showing that there is an inherent character difference in them It says, the righteous man who forsakes evil, who dwells in continually doing good, will be evident to all in his righteousness. In other words, it's not going to be difficult to tell that he is a righteous man and where his hope lay. His speech will pour forth wisdom. He will continually stand for what is good and right. He is so rooted in the law of God, right, that it's not merely this esoteric head knowledge that he holds on to, but his very heart is steeped in the promises and word of God, he walks with integrity, knowing that his steps will not falter, nor will he turn to the side, because his conviction is that he is to be a single-minded man, that he is to be a man with always, his eyes always on God himself, his mind always in the word, his hand always at the plow, pushing forward so that he might simply do the work of his king. Well, so naturally, the, the righteous man's confidence rests in God. He knows that the Lord loves justice, Therefore, he does justly, and he knows that the Lord will not forsake those who do justice. In spite of however bleak things look around him, the righteous man always walks in faithfulness to his God because he knows that the righteous will endure forever. In other words, he continues to plod the faithful course because of what lies ahead. He knows the wicked will be cut off. It's not a matter of if, but of when. He knows there are two vastly different destinies, in other words. The one who trusts in God knows that his outcome is secure. Secure. And then he brings this contrast to an even greater disparity in verses 32 through 34. He shows the characteristics of the wicked, but ultimately the futility of their ways. So if you look at verse 32, you see the wicked, he spies upon the righteous. He seeks to kill him. And yet the Lord will not leave him, being the righteous, in the wicked's hand, nor will he let him be condemned when he is judged. In other words, he will not let wickedness triumph. Even if justice somehow is perverted in this life, and beloved, sometimes that happens. The guarantee is that the wicked will not escape justice. But even sweeter than this is that justice, and I mean true justice, will be given to the righteous man in the end genuine justice will be accomplished no matter what. And this is why the psalmist then gives another command to them in verse 34. He just tells the righteous, again, wait on the Lord. Keep his way. He's going to exalt you in due time. You will live to see justice poured out. He says, wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you will see it you will see it, you will behold it. It's not going to be something that escapes your sight. This is what gives us hope, in other words. This is why we press on and continually doing good is because we will see the day in which God will not only punish the wicked, but will exalt the righteous. That's the ultimate basis for us doing good, that in due time, we will be exalted. So every wrongful accusation will be exonerated. There's no false charges When the Lord takes up our case, every idle word will be held to account by the God who sees all and knows all. Every single instance of wrong ever committed will be upheld in perfect justice. Do you ever just stop to think about that aspect of things? That God will actually take up your case? He will dispute against the evildoer for you on your behalf? I mean, my simple point in all this is that this is what frees you and I up to continue persevering and doing good. We don't have to, in other words, get bent out of shape over whatever people might do to us. We don't have to worry about whether or not the Lord will bring justice because the promise is that he will. We don't worry or, add an, or try to add an hour to our life by our worry because God will vindicate us. We do, however, stay in a place of faithfulness we trust in the Lord. And so the world around us is running at breakneck speak to all sorts of evil. And even when that evil comes against you and I, we don't flip out. It should just simply lead us to ask one simple question. And how can I be as faithful as possible to the Lord, knowing that one day I will be raised with him in Christ, and I will inherit every blessing? How do I say as faithful as possible, knowing all the things that God has promised will be accomplished. So you look and you see that though the wicked may seem to have the upper hand, though they may skirt around the law and seem to get away with it every time, though that they may seem to even be blessed in all that they do, the unfailing promise of the Lord is that you will be exalted if you are in Christ. And they will be brought low. The wicked will be brought low, but the righteous will be exalted. Therefore, we trust in Him. Well, now in the final few verses of the psalm here, we come to the last unfailing promise of God. The unrighteous may seem invincible, but the Lord will save the righteous. Verses 35 through 40. Now, once again, David brings a, a vivid contrast to the righteous and the unrighteous in this section. He does so by, again, giving us an example from his own personal life, And notice he starts in verse 35. He says, I have seen a wicked, violent man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. In other words, there was this wicked, violent man who spread himself out. He was the tallest of oaks with the roots down deep. And this evil and malicious man seemed to be untouchable. He seemed to get away with it all. There was no end in sight. He towered over the weak. By every measurable appearance, this man flourished. Wealth, power, prestige, he had every bit of it, and his grubby little hands found no shortage of things to defile. And yet one day David looked for him, and he was not able to find him. He was no more. This once towering and malicious figure just simply disappeared. And all of a sudden, David realized this guy is not a threat, he's gone. Again, notice the contrast he marks here in verses 37 through 38. He, he, tell, he talks of this guy, and then he tells this in 37, Mark the blameless man. Behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity. But the lawless ones will be altogether destroyed, and their lineage will be cut short. So he says, in the end, the wicked won't stand, but the righteous will. Big trees, in other words, fall hard. But like a tender shoot, a bruised reed, the righteous will be saved. And so picture the righteous person like a sapling that's growing in a forest. The large trees crowded out. They suck up all the nutrients. They block out all of the light. The root system goes down deep, and it seems as if that sapling will just simply shrivel up and die. That's what they have, right? And yet, from the outside perspective, that's what would seem to be the case, But here, just the opposite is the case. When the Lord comes, he he comes and uproots those large trees, and then he stoops down and nourishes the sapling. He cultivates it. He raises it up. He provides for it. He provides for its offspring. And so in that sense, beloved, you are the sapling, and your children are the offspring. To be nourished by the word and the providential hand of God, ultimately, this is the image being given to us here, is that God will sustain again but notice that this is still attached to a promise in verses 39 through 40. He says the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. The Lord helps them. He delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them. Why? Because they take refuge in him. Now there's something incredibly special going on in the text here. And I just want to try and draw this out for you very briefly. But think of the sermon that Matt just preached on different aspects of salvation. David uses a series of words. He describes God as Savior to his people, but he does throw through three or five different terms here. The first one is that God is our salvation. And here, he's not speaking to us being saved from sin, but that God is our deliverer. He is The one who helps us when evil men come to war against us, he will ultimately deliver us from harm and from evil, and he will save us from their hand. They will not, in other words, succeed in their plans to kill us because God delivers us from harm. Well, the second is that God is our strength in times of trouble. And the word here is actually describing God as a stronghold. He is a fortress. He is our defense. He protects us from every assailant. He is our safety But not only this, he places us well outside of the range of any who seek to harm us. They can't, in other words, even touch us. Nothing can touch us when trouble comes. The third is that he is our helper. And this one's pretty self-explanatory, but he comes to our rescue and ultimately he knows the best way to rescue us. But he actually does so. The fourth is that he is our way of escape. And this is where your Bibles say he delivers them from the wicked, but the word delivers here is different from that first one I described. Here it speaks of God as the one who liberates us. He frees us. He literally snatches us from the clutches of evil and places us into safety. And then the fifth and final one here is that he is the God who saves us. And again, this is different from that first word that pops up because it's talking about God making us victorious. It's talking about being victorious in him. It's not merely that God snatches us from harm. It's not that he simply protects us and keeps us safe, but that ultimately in him, we will overcome evil. We will overcome it. In other words, we will win the war because of God. These are just five different ways he very quickly describes the fullness of salvation given to those who are trusting in the Lord. And it's rather incredible Isn't it? I mean, no matter how you look and turn it, no matter how you examine this doctrine we call salvation, there's just another aspect in which you are completely and utterly saved in him. And the simple reason is that the righteous take refuge in him. In other words, he is their salvation. It's not merely that he saves, he is their salvation. And that's at the heart of everything that David's driving to in this psalm is that God is our our refuge. He is our safety. He is our security. He is our sustenance. And therefore we trust in him. Beloved, there's truly nothing that can stand against us. God saves us not only from our sin, but he saves us from literally everything else. We're not even aware of all the things that he's protected us from. The question though, again, is that do we believe this or do we believe that appearances are what they seem? Do we believe the real reality behind the scenes or do we believe that everything around us is telling the truth? Well, here he says, again, the righteous or the unrighteous might seem invincible, but one day you're going to go to look for them and they'll be nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Their, their memory will be a distant memory. They'll be cut off. They won't even have their children being more unrighteous than they were. And he says, for the righteous so that I will save you. And therefore we trust in him. And, and so in light of all of this, my simple admonition to you all is to just stop and consider the final end of the righteous and the unrighteous. Just simply look at what is to come. You might look out and see them prosper in every which way today, and you may wonder, is God actually doing something? And you may wonder even at times that dark question, is it all worth it? Is it worth it to persevere and endure through it all? Is it worth it to be kicked and ridiculed and spit on and mocked and slandered and everything else? Especially while I look around and see that the unrighteous or the wicked are enriched, they seemingly are at peace, they are in power. By every measurable criteria, criteria, they seem to stand tall. Well, the promise here is that one day they won't. Appearances are not as they seem, and it is only just a little more time before this reality takes place. They are, in other words, fading away like wisps of smoke in the air. He says, but you, you as the righteous man or woman will stand. You will not fade away. You were promised an eternal, unfading inheritance in Christ. But the beautiful reality is that it's not just this final day when all these things are in place. It is in part and measure now. God now, in the midst of evil and dark days, Promises to vindicate you, to reward you, to sustain you, to exalt you, and, beloved, to save you. You are far, far safer than you can even possibly imagine. Far safer. And so in light of that, I just want to challenge you. Cultivate faithfulness. Stop worrying about all of the what-ifs and preoccupy your mind with trusting in your God and walking in obedience to him. My fear is that you will hear all of this today and not look within your hearts and and think of what ways in which unbelief is present. Faithfulness is never something that you will stumble into. Godliness is never something that you will coast into. Raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord is never something that will just magically happen. Trusting in God is not something that will ever develop if you are always hedging your bets and always planning for contingency. But the greatest way we fool ourselves is even though we know we are strangers and sojourners in this earth, that we somehow think we can still make our home here. Everything will vanish, beloved. Everything will be consumed in fire on that last day. Not just the wicked, but literally everything. Everything will be burned up and made new. It'll be so much better than what we see here today. If you believe that and you truly believe that, I wish to say one more time, no matter what dark days may lay ahead, no matter how bleak the situation may be, in light of God's promises, therefore, we trust in him. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that you are an incredibly kind God to us, that you do not leave us, you do not forsake us, that in every aspect of life we are truly safe in you. There's not a moment that you are surprised by, there's not a path of which our feet walk which is unknown to you, and yet in the midst of it, you, like a father, guide us, you hold our hand and make sure we do not stumble and fall headlong. We thank you that we are utterly safe in Christ, And I pray now that as we depart this week, that we would truly keep this on our minds, knowing that no matter what sins we may just stupidly go after, no matter what we are tempted to think in terms of the eternality of this life, even though it's quickly fading away, that you would instead turn our attention back to Christ, that we would entrust ourselves to you in every single way, knowing that appearances are not as they seem.